of our week of prayer as a congregation. And because of that, I thought it might be useful for us to have a look at Matthew chapter 6 and Jesus' teaching on prayer. As we saw last week, Matthew's chapters 5 to 7 describe Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, but it's really a sermon about discipleship. Jesus gathers his disciples and says to them, this is what it means to live in community with one another under my rule and under my reign. And he speaks about some of their ethical obligations, their obligations to the world. And in chapter 6, he speaks to them about their religious ob obligations, uh, their, their, what, how, how life is supposed to look in terms of their relationship with God. And in chapter 6, um, from verse 5, Jesus comes to the subject of prayer. So let's have a look. Jesus says, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is God's word. So we don't have time to look at everything about prayer this morning. We don't even have time to look at everything in the prayer that Jesus gives to us. But I'd like to give us just a few reminders from the first part of the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. We're not going to look at the second part of the prayer because it's probably the part that we use the most often in our own praying. Uh, the part that deals with our requests that we make to God for ourselves. But the first part of the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray begins with God. And that's why prayer in church is so important, because it makes us start with God. Prayer forces us to give up being in control of our church and relying on our own wisdom and programs and ideas. It moves our focus onto God. And in life and in church and in prayer, we need always to begin with God. One writer puts it this way, he says, prayer that doesn't start with God is always in danger of concentrating on ourselves. And very soon it stops being prayer altogether and collapses into the random thoughts, fears, and longings of our own minds. And so what we're doing in the first part of this prayer is we're orientating ourselves. Uh, in the olden days, before GPS and satellite navigation, people used to use maps. Not sure how many of you remember maps. There were those things printed on pieces of paper that you folded up and could never fold back up again in the same, in the same way again. But perhaps if you were out hiking and you wanted to know how to get from point A to point B, you would take out your map of the area. And the first thing you would have to do would be to orientate yourself. 
My GPS still does that to me. It says head north. And I think, well, if I knew where north was, I wouldn't need the GPS to begin with. But you'd take out your map, and if you had a compass, you would figure out where north was, and then you would move your entire body until you faced north, and then the map would tell you where to go. Or perhaps if you didn't know where north was, you would find a mountain and maybe something else, and then you'd orientate the map until you could see uh, where you were headed. Uh, Kathy's smiling at the back because they do that for fun. There's a sport called orienteering. And if you want to know more about it, chat to them afterwards. It's great fun. Ah, Sam's there as well. Yeah, you take your map and you, you run around a course based on how you orientate yourself. And that's what the first part of this prayer does. It orientates us. Because we've spent all week out there in the world where things have shifted a little bit. The world says, blessed are the rich, blessed are the clever, blessed are the beautiful, blessed are the pushy, blessed are those who stand up for themselves. And now we have to reorientate ourselves. Jesus' prayer begins, our Father. And let's maybe just uh, pause on that very first word. If you look carefully through this prayer, you'll see that the word our appears four times, the word us appears four times, the word we appears once, and the words me, my, and I do not appear at all. Why does Jesus give us this word our? Is it because he expects this prayer will be prayed by congregations in churches and cathedrals? No. Jesus has just said in verse 6, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father. So Jesus envisages us praying this prayer privately, but even when I'm praying this prayer alone, I always have to recognize that I'm part of a community. It's not just Jesus and me. It's always Jesus and us. Following Jesus is done in community. And that means that I must never do anything that would undermine that community and that I'm to be mindful of the wider community when I pray, that I'm to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, that I remember those in prison as if I myself were in prison. Jesus teaches us to pray our Father which means that prayer is primarily about relationship. It's not so much about us telling God things that he does not know, as it is about us simply being with God. You can see that in the fact that right before Jesus tells us to pray, he tells us that God knows what we're going to pray already. Did you see that? It's quite a contrast in verses 8 and 9. Jesus says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. We sometimes think, well, why should I pray if God knows what I'm going to say? But Jesus specifically says, God knows what you're going to say, so pray. Why? Because prayer is about relationship. When they were smaller, I would sometimes watch my girls uh, playing outside. My study overlooked uh, their play area. And sometimes they would come running in and tell me what they'd been up to. Dad, Dad, do you know what we did? I never once stopped them and said, of course I know what you did. I've been watching you for the last half an hour. Don't bother me. 
I wanted to know what they had to say out of a relationship. I love them. I love to hear from them. Uh, have any of you ever had a three-year-old tell you the plot of a movie that you know? <laughs> Somebody's defined eternity as that. <laughs> eternity is listening to a three-year-old giving the plot of a movie that you know. But you never stop them, do you, and say, don't bother me. You want to hear from them. Prayer is about relationship, being with our Father. Now, sadly, that word Father is a difficult word for some people. Uh, there are folk here this morning who don't know their earthly father. Uh, there are those who have emotionally absent fathers, those who have abusive fathers, those who have drunkard fathers. But I guess that even if we have good fathers, there's always a gap between the father that we have and the father that we long for. When Jesus told us to address God as Father, he was thinking of the best possible Father, the Father that we long for. At our quiet day yesterday, we were meditating on Psalm 103, where the psalmist says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And it just struck me that the analogy runs the other way as well, that as a father, as a parent, I know what it's like to have compassion on my children. I know what it's like to forgive them again and again and again. I know what it's like to care for them and to love them and to feel for them. And if I can do these things imperfectly for them, can't I trust that God is the more perfect father to me? The father that I am, and I'm relatively uh, happy about the kind of father I am, isn't it so much better to think that God is even infinitely greater than that towards me? But there's another important aspect to the word father. It's very interesting that in the Gospels, whenever Jesus prayed, he always prayed, my father. He never prayed, our father. Jesus, as God's son, had a unique relationship with God. And the only way that we can address God as our father is through a living relationship with Jesus. Jesus always addressed God as my father except once. Can you remember where? It was on the cross as Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Jesus took my sin and your sin upon himself on the cross, he was separated from his Father. Jesus was forsaken by his Father so that we could call God our Father. Jesus, who alone had the right to call God my Father, gave up that right on the cross so that you and I, who have no right whatsoever to address God as Father, may cry out, Our Father. And not even just our Father, but as Paul puts it, Abba, Father. It's the most intimate uh, word that we use of a father. Uh, yeah, I've, I've heard little Jewish children crying out to their dad, Abba, Abba. It's this wonderful, intimate relationship that we're invited into. In 1 John chapter 3, the Apostle John marvels and he says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And we could change that slightly and say, How great is the love that God has lavished on us that we should be able to call him Father. 
But then we remind ourselves that God is our Father in heaven. And Jesus isn't speaking here about God's address or location, that he lives way, way out there somewhere. No, Jesus is speaking about the otherness of God and the power of God, that God is just totally different from us, way beyond all that we could think or imagine. And that's really important. The writer of the book of Ecclesiastes had this advice about prayer. He said, don't be quick with your mouth. Don't be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. God himself says in Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, how far is that? Is that from here to the sky? No, it's to the edge of the universe, which isn't even a fixed point because the universe is constantly expanding. If we wanted to send a space shuttle from Earth to the edge of the universe and we sent it at the speed of light, 670 million miles an hour, it would take that spaceship traveling at 670 miles an hour, it would take it 15 billion years to reach the edge of the universe. Some of you may have seen some of the images that are coming to us from the James Webb telescope. And the scientists pointed the telescope at a patch of space and they were astounded at the image that came back. Instead of just seeing hundreds of stars, now with this new clearer telescope, they saw hundreds of galaxies. Uh, this is one of the pictures, and the, the lights with the spikes on them are stars within our own galaxy. But all of the other lights that you see there are galaxies. Now you might say, well, that's a very pretty picture of the night sky. But it's even more impressive when you realize that that's not the night sky. If you took a grain of sand and you held it up to the sky, that would represent the patch of sky that is represented by that image. In other words, multiply this image millions of times, and that is what life around us looks in the universe. Trillions of galaxies all around us, each containing billions of stars. There are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on all the seashores of earth. In Isaiah 40, God asks, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Is this the kind of person I invite into my life to be my assistant? <laughs> Sometimes when I'm sat in prayer, I just think about that picture of the galaxy and whereabouts I find myself in the universe. I just be still and know that he is God. And addressing him as our Father in heaven reminds me that he is God and I am not. Well, having told us to address God as our Father in heaven, Jesus gives us three requests that we're to make of our Father. We pray firstly, hallowed be your name. 
May your name be treated as holy, set apart, different, special, sacred. Now God's name is already holy because he has a name that is above every name. In the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, we read how the prophet Isaiah has a vision of God and there are these living creatures, cherubim and seraphim, around God. And the seraphim cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. At our Ash Wednesday service this past week, we confessed before God that we have taken his name in vain. That we've prayed religious prayers to impress others. We've uttered your name countless times without reverence or love. And we've listened to others use your name in vain without grieving. But God's name also means God's character, his very person, so that when we pray, hallowed be your name, we're praying, may you yourself be treated as holy, as special in my life. In 1 Peter chapter 3, the Bible says, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. That's what I'm doing when I pray, hallowed be your name. You see, the problem is that we too have a name, don't we? Uh, we like to see our name. You can test this for yourself. If you go back to your old high school and you go down the passage where all of the old photographs are and you come to your year group, whose picture do you look for first? It's yourself, isn't it? Be honest. <laughs> we like to see our name, whether it's on a nice brass plaque at the office or whether it's in the newspaper or in the school magazine. We want our name to look good. We're worried sometimes when our name gets tarnished. We're concerned about our name. But as a Christian, my primary concern can't be with my name, but rather with God's name. Lord, may your name be treated as holy in my life. Secondly, in this prayer, not only are we concerned for God's name, but we're concerned for God's rule. Your kingdom come. And we're asking a couple of things here. Firstly, we're asking for gospel expansion, for the spread of God's kingdom. We're asking that right now, men and women and young people would come under the rule and reign of Jesus. Secondly, and more importantly, we're praying, may your kingdom be extended in my life. Because the problem is, just as much as I have a name, I have a kingdom. My kingdom is that little sphere in which what I say goes. If you've got two kids in the back of the car, what's the first thing they try and do on a long journey? They work out where their kingdom is. They draw a line down the back of the back seat. This is my kingdom, and that is your kingdom, and you better not come into my kingdom. And then they have a little war. Dad is on my side. And then what happens? Well, Dad turns around and says, Do you want me to come back there? Because Dad thinks that the entire car is his kingdom. I have a kingdom, and I get very upset when my kingdom is challenged. And that's why it's quite difficult to pray this phrase of the prayer, because what am I doing? I'm giving up my kingdom. Lord, may your kingdom come in my life. There are areas of my life where you are not in control. I'm trying to handle this part of my life on my own. Lord, may your kingdom come in my marriage, in my relationships, in my friendships, in my finances. Lord, may your rule extend in my life. But then finally, in praying your kingdom come, we're also praying one of the earliest Christian prayers that we find. 
We find it in the book of Revelation, the second last line of the Bible. The Lord Jesus says, yes, I am coming soon. And the response of the church is, amen. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. In other words, we're asking and we're looking forward to the day when all of creation is liberated from its bondage to decay, where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. A day when God will wipe every tear from our eyes, where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The day when everything sad will come untrue. And then thirdly, as followers of Jesus, not only should our primary concern be for God's name and for his kingdom, but our concern should be for his will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, only Jesus knew the huge chasm between God's will on earth and God's will as it is in heaven. One commentator says, in heaven, God's will is obeyed by all, spontaneously, with the deepest joy and in a perfect manner, without a shadow of unfaithfulness. And I need to pray, Lord, may your will be done in my life like that. Because the problem is that I have a will too. Just as I, as I have a name and as I have a kingdom, I also have a will. I want my way. I know how things should be run. I could do it better. It's interesting that even Jesus had a will of his own. And even Jesus, who had always submitted his will to the will of his Father, even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. I need to submit my will to God's will. And this isn't blind fatalism, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. We're allowed to struggle with God in prayer and ask him for things. Uh, we, and we have accounts in the Bible where prayer seemingly changed God. But we describe our will to God humbly and we hold it lightly. I remember one man saying that sometimes when he prayed he would say, Lord, I know how I would like to see this turn out. But nevertheless, your will be done. Which, in fact, is the safest prayer that we can ever possibly pray. Because in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul describes God's will as his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We've got absolutely nothing to fear in design, desiring the will of God in our lives. As Pastor John Stott puts it, to lose ourselves in the will of God is to find ourselves, to find our true selves. And so we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As a child, I always used to enjoy uh, the Reader's Digest, a nice little thin magazine, which has become a lot thinner and a lot more expensive nowadays, if it still exists even. But uh, I always remembered reading the sort of drama in real life stories. And I'll never forget reading an article about a rescue that took place in Antarctica 
a plane had crashed just short of the base camp in Antarctica, and there was an immediate, an immediate reaction from both land and sea, and air, in fact, to try and get to the survivors. One of the things that the rescuers did was to send one of those huge Hercules transport planes to try and parachute some troops into the crash site. And unfortunately, the weather conditions were really not great for a parachute jump, and so the Hercules aircraft ended up circling around and around the crash site, just waiting for the weather to clear so that the troops could parachute in. And uh, eventually, they thought, well, maybe it's going to be clear enough, and so they dropped a parachute flare, and this flare began to float down, and then they saw that the flare was sort of jumping up and down in the air and they thought this is really strange until they suddenly realized that the flare was not in the air, it was bouncing on the rocks that were just a few meters below them. What had happened was because of them circling, the, this aircraft's gyroscope had jammed and they didn't know where they were. They were dangerously close to crashing themselves and they immediately abandoned the rescue operation and went back to have the gyroscopes realigned. These first few lines of the prayer of Jesus reorientate us. They realign us. And, we, and when we regularly, through prayer, reorientate ourselves, we begin to build a foundation for our lives, a solid foundation that the floods and the winds and the rains of this world can never erode. We also build a foundation for our church, a strong foundation that the gates of hell will never prevail against.